Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 9 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleonora of Castile, Part 1. The marriage of the Infanta Donna Eleonora of Castile with Prince Edward, heir of England, happily terminated a war, which her brother, King Alfonso, surnamed the astronomer, was waging with Henry III, on account of some obsolete claims the Castilian monarch laid to the province of Gascony. Alfonso had invaded Guienne, but, contrary to his usual fortune, Henry III had the best of the contest, and the royal Castilian was glad to make overtures for peace. Henry, who had not the least gall of bitterness in his composition, and was always more willing to promote a festival than continue a fray, luckily recollected that Alfonso had a fair young sister to dispose of, whose age would just suit his heir, Prince Edward. He therefore dispatched his private chaplain, the Bishop of Bath, with his secretary, John Mansell, from Bordeaux, to demand the hand of the young Infanta, as a pledge of her brother's placable intentions. These ambassadors speedily returned with Don Alfonso's consent, inscribed in a scroll sealed with gold. Alfonso stipulated that the English prince should come to Burgos, to receive the hand of his bride, five weeks before Michaelmas Day, 1254, otherwise the contract should be null and void. The stipulation was not unreasonable, for both the mother and grandmother of the bride had been long engaged to the English princes, who had broken their troth. The king of Castile was but half-brother to the young Donna Eleonora, she was the only child of Ferdinand III of Castile, by Joanna, Countess of Ponthieu, who had been many years before contracted to Henry III, King of England. Joanna inherited Ponthieu from her mother, that princess, Alice of France, whose betrothment with Richard Cour de Lyon, in the preceding century, had involved Europe in war. Eleonora, as the sole descendant of these princesses, was heiress presumptive to Ponthieu and Amurel, which provinces the royal widow of Castile, her mother, retained in her own possession. When the preliminaries of the marriage were settled, the Queen of England, Eleanor of Provence, set out for Bordeaux, with her son, Prince Edward, and from thence traveled across the Pyrenees with him to Burgos, where they arrived August 5th, 1254, within the time limited by the royal astronomer. The stately festival was held in the capital of Castile, in honor of the nuptials of the young Infanta, with the heir of England. At a tournament given by King Alfonso, 
the prince received knighthood from the sword of his brother-in-law. Edward was just fifteen, and the princess was some years younger, at the time of their espousals. After the chivalric festivities at Burgos had ceased, Queen Eleanor recrossed the Pyrenees, accompanied by her son and young daughter-in-law. King Henry waited at Bordeaux to receive his son's bride. He had prepared so great a festival for the reception of the young Infanta, that he expended three hundred thousand marks on her marriage feast, to the indignation of his English peers. When one of them reproached him for this extravagance, the king replied, in a dolorous tone, Oh, for the head of God, say no more of it, lest men should stand amazed at the relation thereof. Henry settled on the prince, his heir, all the Aquitanian domains, inherited from Eleonora, his grandmother. He likewise created him Prince of Wales, with an exhortation to employ his youth in conquering the principality, of which he and his princess, rather prematurely, assumed the title, together with that of Guienne. One thousand pounds per annum was the dower settled on the young Eleonora, in case the prince should die before his father. Henry III ordered a suite of rooms to be fitted up for his daughter-in-law in the castle of Guilford. His directions particularly specify that her chamber is to have glazed windows, a raised hearth, a chimney, a wardrobe, and an adjoining oratory or oriel. The young princess accompanied the royal family to England, through France, and at Paris was lodged in the temple, where Henry III gave that celebrated banquet to St. Louis, mentioned in the preceding memoirs, as the Feast of Kings. High festivals and honors were prepared for her reception in England. The most noted of these was the grand entertainment, given by the Secretary of State, John Mansell, a priest, to King Henry, Queen Eleonora, the bride of Prince Edward, the prince himself, the king and queen of Scotland, with such numbers of their retinue, that John Mansell's house at Tothill could not hold half the company. They were lodged in tents and green booths, set up round the mansion. Seven hundred messes of meat were served up at this dinner. Prince Edward and his young bride passed over to Bordeaux in 1256, while Eleonora was completing her education. The young prince led the wandering life of a knight-errant haunting tournaments wherever they were given. He was at Paris, tilting at a very grand jousting match in 1260, when news was brought him of the violent dissensions between the English barons and his father, which led to the fearful civil war that convulsed England for more than three years. During the whole of that disastrous era, his young princess resided in France, with the rest of the royal family, either with Queen Marguerite of France, or with her own mother at Ponthieu. After the heroic efforts of Prince Edward had freed his father and restored him to his throne, and the country breathed in peace after the dreadful strife at Evesham, the royal ladies of England ventured to return. On the 29th of October, 1265, Eleanor of Provence, Queen of England, with her daughter-in-law, Eleonora of Castile, landed at Dover, where they were received by Henry III and Prince Edward. From thence they were escorted to Canterbury, where the royal party was magnificently entertained by the archbishop. 
Prince Edward had left his wife an uninformed girl. She was now a lovely young woman of twenty, to whose character the uncertainty of fortune had assuredly given a favorable bias. The prince conveyed his restored wife to St. John's, Smithfield, after a magnificent welcome by the citizens. Eleonora afterwards removed to the palace of the Savoy, which had been originally built by Count Peter of Savoy, her husband's uncle, and afterwards purchased by Eleanor of Provence, as a London inn, or residence for the younger branches of her family. This was the abode of Eleonora of Castile, when she attended the court at Westminster, but her favorite residence was the castle of Windsor. Here her eldest child was born, the year after her return to England. He was named John, after his grandfather of evil memory. In the succeeding year, 1266, Eleonora gave birth, at Windsor, to a princess named Eleonora, and the year after, to Prince Henry. The beauty of these children, and their early promise, so much delighted their royal grandfather, that he greatly augmented the dower of the mother. Prince Edward took up the cross in 1269, and his virtuous princess resolved to share the perils of his Syrian campaign. Before she departed from England, she accompanied her mother-in-law in a grand progress to various shrines. During the royal progress to Northampton, the Princess Eleonora made a pilgrimage to Dunstable, in company with Queen Eleanor, and offered at the shrine of St. Peter an altar-cloth of gold brocade, as a thanksgiving for the health of her children. On her return, she assisted at a magnificent convocation of the barons of England in Westminster Hall, where they swore fealty and kissed the hand of her little son, Prince John, and recognized him as his father's successor, in case of the death of Edward, in the ensuing crusade. A contemporary historian has left us a very graphic portrait of the husband of Eleonora at this period of his life. He was a prince of elegant form and majestic stature, so tall that few of his people reached his shoulder. His ample forehead and prominent chest added to the dignity of his personal appearance. His arms were most agile in the use of the sword, and his length of limb gave him a firm seat on the most spirited horses. His hair was light before his eastern campaigns, but became dark in middle life. His left eyebrow had a slightly oblique fall, giving a shade of resemblance to his father's face, in whose portrait this defect is strongly marked. The speech of Edward was sometimes hesitating, but when animated, was passionately eloquent. His disposition, which Eleonora of Castile had the sole merit of softening and reforming, was naturally a fiery one, but generous when opposition ceased. In vain did the ladies of Eleonora represent to her the hardships and dangers ever attendant on a crusade. For death on the Asiatic coast threatened in many forms beside the sword. The princess replied in words that well deserved to be remembered and noted. Nothing, said this admirable lady, ought to part those whom God hath joined, and the way to heaven is as near, if not nearer, from Syria as from England or my native Spain. Much has been said regarding the conjugal fidelity of Prince Edward, but previously to his Syrian campaign, he was impetuous and willful in character, and far from a faultless husband. He had inspired the Earl of Gloucester with a mad jealousy, 
who not only accused him of criminal intimacy with his countess, but declared that he, the Earl of Gloucester, had been poisoned by the agency of Prince Edward, and the faithless countess. It is to be feared that the countess of Gloucester was a great coquette, for she had previously been exercising her powers of fascination on the old king, for in the Wakefield Tower has recently been discovered a very curious letter from Margaret, Queen of France, expressing uneasiness, for her sister's sake, at the intimacy between Henry the Third and this countess. The scandal regarding Prince Edward's attention to the fair countess had commenced before the reunion of Eleanor with her husband in 1264, but its effects convulsed the court with broils, till the princess left the court and all its turmoils in the spring of 1270, when she bade farewell to the two lovely boys she never saw again, and sailed for Bordeaux, where she superintended the preparations for the crusade campaign. Edward sailed for Portsmouth about a month later, and met his consort at Bordeaux. They proceeded to Sicily, where they sojourned during the winter, with the expectation that St. Louis, the King of France, would unite in the crusade. Soon after their arrival, tidings were brought of the death of St. Louis, at Tunis, and the discomfiture of his army. The King of Sicily, who was brother to St. Louis, and husband to Edward's aunt, endeavored to persuade his royal guests to give up their crusading expedition, whereupon Prince Edward struck his breast and exclaimed with energy, Sang de Dieu, if all should desert me, I would lay siege to Aachen, if only attended by Fowen, my groom. The following spring, Edward and Eleonora arrived at Ptolemais. The prince made an expedition as far as Nazareth, and put all the garrison to the sword, and when the Saracens came to their rescue, he engaged the infidel army, and defeated them with great slaughter. He won another battle, June 1271, at Cahau, and thus terminated his first and second campaign. He returned to Cyprus for the winter, and, being reinforced by the Cypriots, undertook the siege of Acre the succeeding summer, still attended by his faithful Eleonora. The emir of Joppa, who was the Saracen admiral, pretending that he was desirous of becoming a Christian convert, had sent a messenger several times with letters to the Prince of England. This envoy was one of the agents of the old man of the mountains, who kept a band for secret murders, called assassins. After the cunning fanatic had created a confidence in Edward's mind, by frequent messages, he was introduced into the royal chamber, bringing letters, for the fifth time, from the emir. The prince was indisposed from the heat of the climate, and was lying on his bed bareheaded, wearing only a white vest. The assassin gave him some letters to read, written on purpose to please the Christian prince. They were alone in the apartment, because the negotiation touched the life and honor of the admiral of Joppa. Therefore secrecy was imperatively needful. The assassin pretended that he had another paper to deliver, but drew out with it a poniard, and aimed a blow at the side of the prince, as he lay before him on the bed. Fortunately, Edward perceived the treachery, and, suddenly raising his arm, received the blow upon it. The assassin endeavored to reiterate the stroke, but Edward, who seems not to have risen from his recumbent posture, felled him to the ground, with a kick on the breast. Again the assassin returned to the attack, and the prince finally killed him, with a trestle, or stool that stood by. 
The attendants, hearing the scuffle, came running in, and the prince's harper, or minstrel, beat out the assassin's brains, whereat the prince sternly reproached him, asking, What was the use of striking a dead man? After some days, the prince's wounded arm began to show unfavorable symptoms, and the flesh blackening showed signs of mortification, insomuch that all about him began to look heavily upon each other. Why whisper ye thus among yourselves? said the prince. What see ye in me? Tell the truth and fear not. Then Hemingford declares that the master of the temple recommended incisions, which would be exquisitively painful. If suffering, said the prince to the surgeon, brought to him by the master of the temple, may again restore my health. I commit myself to you. Work on me your will, and spare not. Eleonora was by his bedside at this dreadful crisis. She lost her firmness, and bewailed, with a passion of tears, the anguish about to be inflicted on her husband. Edward, with his usual decisive character, cut short the agony of his wife, by bidding his brother Edmund, and his favorite knight, John de Vesky, carry the princess out of the room. They took her in their arms, and bore her from the apartment, she shrieking and struggling all the time, till her brother-in-law told her, that it was better that she should scream and cry, than all England mourn and lament. The surgical operation was effectual. In fifteen days, Edward was able to mount his horse, though his health was long in a precarious state. He always attributed his final recovery to the tender care and attention of Eleonora. But if there be any truth in the story of her sucking the poison from his wounds, the narrators of the scene, who have entered into its details so minutely, would not have forgotten the circumstance. While yet in ill health, Prince Edward made his will. With a philosophy rare at this era, he leaves his body to be buried wherever his executors please. To his principal executor, his brother-in-law and fellow crusader, John, Duke of Bretagne, he leaves the guardianship of his children, if he should die before they come of age. He provides for the dowry of his dear wife, Eleonora, but does not leave her either guardian to the realm, in reversion, or to her children. Scarcely was the prince recovered from his wound, when Eleonora brought into the world an infant princess, named Joanna, and called from the place of her birth, Joanna of Acre. The next remarkable event that happened at Acre, while Eleonora remained there with her royal lord, was, that a pope was chosen, in a manner, out of their household. Theobald, Archbishop of Liege, who attended the royal pair on their crusade, was in his absence elected to the papal throne, which he ascended under the name of Gregory X. This pontiff had been the tutor of Prince Edward. The army of the prince being reduced by sickness, want, and desertion, he considered that it was useless to tarry longer in Syria. Leaving behind him a reputation not inferior to that of his great uncle, Cur de Leon, Edward turned his back most reluctantly on the Holy Land, and, with his princess and infant daughter, arrived safely at Sicily, where heavy tidings awaited them. The news first reached them that Prince John, their lovely and promising heir, whose talents were unequaled for his years, had died August 1st, 1272. Scarcely had the princess and her husband received this intelligence, when they heard of the death of their second son, Prince Henry, and a third messenger brought the news to Messina, 
that King Henry III was dead, and that Prince Edward was now Edward I of England. The firmness and resignation with which Eleonora and Edward bore the loss of their promising boys surprised everyone at the Sicilian court. But when the prince heard of the death of his royal sire, he gave way to a burst of anguish so bitter that his uncle, Charles of Anjou, king of Sicily, who was in company with him, astonished at his manner of receiving intelligence that hailed him king, asked him how it was that he bore the loss of both his sons with such quiet resignation, and abandoned himself to grief at the death of an aged man. Edward made this memorable answer. The loss of infants may be repaired by the same God that gave them. But when a man has lost a good father, it is not in the course of nature for God to send him another. From Sicily, Queen Eleonora accompanied her royal husband to Rome, where they were welcomed and magnificently entertained by their friend, Pope Gregory X. England, happy in the permanent settlement of her ancient representative government, now for the first time practically established since the reign of St. Edward, enjoyed such profound tranquility that her young king and queen were able to remain more than a year in their continental dominions. During this time the queen gave birth, at the town of Maine, to another heir, more beautiful and promising than either of his deceased brethren. The queen named him after her beloved brother Alfonso, a name which sounds strangely to English ears, but had this prince lived to wear the crown of his great father, it would, in all probability, have become as national to England as the names of Edward or George. A second time, at this juncture, the life of Edward was preserved, in a manner that he considered almost miraculous. As he was sitting with his queen on a couch, in their palace at Bordeaux, a flash of lightning killed two lords who were standing directly behind them, without injuring the royal pair. Edward, with his queen, made a progress home through all his French provinces, tilting at tournaments as he went. Passing through Paris, he did homage to the king of France, for Aquitaine and its dependencies, before he returned to assume the English crown. The king and queen landed at Dover, August 2nd, 1273. All preparations had been made for their speedy coronation, which took place on the 19th of the same month. They were received in London with the utmost exultation. The merchants, enriched by peaceful commerce with the rich wine provinces of the south, showered gold and silver on the royal retinue, as they passed under the windows of the cheap. Both houses of Parliament assembled, to welcome and do honor to their constitutional king and his virtuous consort. At the coronation of Edward and Eleonora, preparations were made for the exercise of the most profuse hospitality. The whole areas of the palace yards, old and new, were filled with wooden buildings, open at the top, to let out the smoke of cooking. Here, for a whole fortnight, were prepared successions of banquets, served up for the entertainment of all comers, where the independent Franklin, the stout yeoman from the country, and the rich citizen and industrious artisan from the metropolis, alike found a welcome, and were entertained gratuitously. Good order was general, and everyone delighted with this auspicious commencement of the new reign. Edward and Eleonora were crowned by the hands of Robert Kilwardby, Archbishop of Canterbury. One of the most extraordinary features of this coronation is recorded in an old black letter manuscript chronicle. King Edward was crowned and anointed as right heir of England, 
with as much honor and worship with his virtuous queen and after mass the king went to his palace to hold a royal feast among all the peers that had done him honor and worship and when he was set at his meat king alexander of scotland came to do him service and to worship with a quintus and a hundred knights with him horsed and arrayed and when they were light off their horses they let their horses go whither they would and they that could catch them had them to their own behoof and after that came sir edmund the king's brother a courteous knight and a gentleman of renown and the earl of gloucester and after them came the earl of pembroke and the earl of warren and each of them led a horse by their hand and a hundred of their knights did the same and when they were alight off their horses they let them go wherever they would and they that could take them had them still at their liking the coronation of edward and eleanora had been graced by the presence of the king of scotland and the duke of bretagne but llewellyn prince of wales absented himself upon which the king of england sent him a sharp message to know wherefore he did not tender his homage at the late coronation of himself and queen llewellyn refused to acknowledge that any homage was due he was a victorious prince for taking advantage of the recent civil wars in england he had reconquered all the territory which the norman predecessors of edward i had wrested from the welsh the first mischance that befell the welsh was the capture of the bride of llewellyn coming from france her vessel was seized by the bristol merchantmen who carried her prisoner to king edward this prince had not yet learned to behave with cruelty to women the young damsel though the daughter of simon de montfort his mortal foe whom he had slain in battle was at the same time the child of his aunt eleanor plantagenet he received her with the courtesy of a kinsman and consigned her to the gentle keeping of his queen with whom she resided at windsor castle the war with wales lasted till twelve seventy eight when llewellyn finding it impossible to recover his bride by force of arms submitted to the required homage and queen eleanora brought the lady eleanor montfort to worcester where king edward bestowed his kinswoman upon llewellyn giving her away with his own royal hand while his amiable queen supported her at the altar of worcester cathedral and graced the nuptial feast of prince llewellyn with her presence the prince and princess of wales afterwards accompanied the king and queen to westminster with a great retinue of malcontent snowden barons and their vassals after this pacification the death of the queen of castile caused the provinces of ponthieu and almerle to devolve on her daughter queen eleanora who quitted england with king edward in order to take possession of her inheritance and do homage to the king of france the return of the royal pair was hastened by another welsh war for the fair bride of llewellyn died after bringing him a living daughter and the prince urged by the songs of the bards and the indignation of his subjects regarding his homage suddenly invaded england the ambiguous words of a prophecy of merlin asserting that a prince born in wales should be the acknowledged king of the whole british island was the stimulus that led to a war terminating in the death of the brave llewellyn the gold coronet of the unfortunate prince taken from his head by lord mortimer after the fatal skirmish at bilth was offered by prince alfonso at the shrine of edward the confessor
End of section 9. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.